Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Steve Edwards. Hello from very cold and rainy, typical April Portland. We also have Dan Shapir. Hi from a warm and sunny Tel Aviv. Uh, quit saying that. It makes me nuts. Uh, what can I do? It's, always, it's almost <laughs> always warm and sunny in Tel Aviv. Uh, I know. I'm a Charles Max Wood from Top End Devs. It's also warm and sunny here in Utah, but by the end of the week, it won't be that anymore. Welcome to Utah weather. We have a special guest this week, and that is Thomas Randolph. Thomas, do you want to introduce yourself, let people know why you're famous? Sure. As you said, my name is Thomas Randolph. I, uh, I'm i not famous. Let's start with that. Um, yeah. After this podcast, there'll be people clamoring for your <laughs> autograph. That's right. You'll be infamous. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I would say my only my only real presence is kind of on Twitter. I, I interact casually with folks like Dan and, and other people. I work at GitLab, so uh-huh. you may have heard of have heard of GitLab. I'm coming at you from uh, from Denver, where it's also kind of warm and sunny. Although, like Utah, the weather could change at any moment. So, yep, expecting maybe to have snow even this this month. So who knows? Yeah, yeah we, we just already had a had snow, snow day here in Portland month, last yeah. week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just had our airport and closed all the schools and everything. You know, here they close if you get an eighth of an inch, but it was a lot of snow for one day. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's another thing about Tel Aviv. It never snows in Tel Aviv. Actually, it did snow. I, I'm told that it snowed once in the 50s, but, you know, since then. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. 70 years. I remember when I lived in Italy, I was living in Tuscany and it snowed and people just didn't know what to do. So, anyway. <laughs> We're going to be talking about TC39 stuff and uh, upcoming features for ECMAScript. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there. And we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Thomas, do you kind of want to, you have this list that you kind of rounded up for us. Uh, Do you want to kind of tell us where this list came from? Like how you figured out what you were excited about or what was coming and then Tell us, yeah, why you ranked them the way you ranked them, and then we can dive into the individual bits. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the 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 basic background or context is that I'm I'm really interested in the JavaScript language. So, so how it's how it's put together, the the ideas that go into the changes that are made in it, um, that really interests me. So I follow I follow the TC39 process pretty closely and follow proposals that are are being presented for for the changes to JavaScript. So. There are a lot of them, and they they kind of vary. You could put them in probably two major camps. It's more like a more of an object oriented or class based one, and then more of like a functional sort of functional composition sort of side. And so I, I lean more toward the functional side. So the, the the ranking that that I have here is the things that would enable me to do more of a compositional style application. So I have all sorts of ideas about streaming data and, and function composition and those sorts of things. So my list comes from that interest in how JavaScript can advance on sort of the functional side versus the, the class-based side. If I can interject for a minute, because we kind of jumped right into it. For some of our listeners, they may not be familiar with the, the, the term TC39. Yeah. Uh, TC39 is a committee that's part of the uh, ECMA organization that's responsible for what is known as ECMAScript, which the name that Brendan Eich, the cre- inventor or creator of JavaScript, has likened to a, a skin disease. <laughs> but, that's, <laughs> but that's the official name of the JavaScript standard for uh, copyright reasons. 
for those of you who don't know, the name JavaScript actually belongs to Oracle. So they had to pick a different name for the language standard, and that's ECMAScript. But effectively, all all JavaScript implementations or engines are essentially just implementations of the ECMAScript standard. And TC39 is that body or committee that's responsible for advancing it. And one more thing that I would like to say about it is that we actually had an episode about the process of how suggestions go through the TC39 committee. That was episode uh, 425, the evolution of JavaScript, and we'll put a link in the show notes to it. But if so, if people want to hear more details about exactly how that works. Yeah, that's great. So we're going to be talking, we'll, we'll talk about a bunch of proposals and, and I'll, I'll note the, diff- the various stages that they're in because that's mm-hmm. important to know like how likely it will be in the ECMAScript specification. So a bunch of the ones that I'm excited about are stage one, which is they aren't even sure it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen, but I'm interested in it. Right. So where do we start then? I think one of the one of the most exciting things coming that's going to impact a lot of people is the, is the temporal proposal, which yes. um, has been has yes. been long running, yes. a long time coming. Yes. But uh, if you've ever used the built in date constructor in JavaScript, you've probably experienced some of the pain points with it. It's a uh, define used. so i mean obviously constructing a date and just being like what's the string for that date that's not that painful but as soon as you try to do any sort of math on it uh like oh what what's four months in the future things get hairy things get uh, pretty messy especially if you're trying to do it between two people right like a calendaring system like what what is what is this time and date on this other person's in, in this other person's time zone, for example, that stuff is is hard. Hold this, on, I'm having heart palpitations. <laughs> <laughs> My stress level has gone through the roof. Exactly, and there's 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 like no built-in way to add, right? Like just add a month to this, and it's just it just doesn't exist. You could do something naively and add a bunch of milliseconds to the to the underlying value of a date, but that's it's it, you're it getting can, into really bad territory. It can get even more ridiculous than that. As I recall, some of the values there are zero-based and some of the values there are one-based. And it's a really, really amusing implementation of date. And by the way, the reason that JavaScript got this really amusing implementation is that Brendan Eich basically copied it over from uh, the Java programming language when he implemented it. So we got all the idiosyncrasies that were baked into Java also made it into JavaScript in the context of the date object. I think it's important to note that they're actually not baked into Java anymore. So when Brendan was writing JavaScript originally, you know, he was told, you know, make it like Java because Java was hugely popular. It still is. But at the time, he copied the data implementation from Java 1, 1.0. And I actually have a, I have a link in, in my notes from uh, one of the authors of this of temporal pro- proposal and basically said the implementation that he copied from Java was frankly terrible. And it's been deprecated and removed uh, since then. And in fact, it was deprecated and removed in Java 1.1. We're currently in Java 18. <laughs> we're, in, we're in Java 18 right now. Wow. And we've been, JavaScript has been stuck with that same date implementation since 1997, 96. So it's, it's high time for something better. And that's what Temporal is. Well, yeah. So, so I mean, there's a what reason are you trying to mo- say? <laughs> there's a reason that I, Moment was so ubiquitous yes. in JavaScript. Oh, yeah. And now you used to get it, you know, the stripped down versions like date functions, date underscore yep. FNS is one I've used. Yep. And those, because people were finding better and better and more efficient ways to handle date math inside the JavaScript. So, yeah. you know, I think w- once the temporal, you know, proposal was made, you know, this was a typical response, I think, that was out there. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I too, have encountered many, many projects that bundled Moment.js. And, you know, yeah. a big issue with that is that Moment tended to be fairly large. And Huge. also, yeah, and also the fact that I've actually seen projects that for various NPM issues bundled Moment, like three different versions of Moment. So, like... 80% of the project of the da- project's download was actually just moment.js, uh, yeah. which is pretty unfortunate. Yeah. And I mean, moment doesn't even ship by default with useful time zone handling. Of course, your browser can handle your own local time zone pretty easily. Mm-hmm. But if you need to do translation across time zones, even moment ships that as a separate library because it's such a huge amount of data. There's so many little tweaks here and there and like, oh, we skipped a month in, in one year. 120 years ago and like that you just have to have that encoded somewhere and that data is a separate download so 
any project that that needs to do any sort of interesting date time manipulation is shipping one of those libraries that we talked about, like Moment or Date Functions or some of the Moment contributors or creators created a library called Luxon, which shares a lot of interesting DNA with Moment, but it is it creates immutable objects, whereas Moment is always mutating its own objects, which can sometimes be pretty tricky because <laughs> sometimes you want to add something to a date and have a new date, not change the original one. But all those, all that work was done to paper over this, frankly, pretty bad date implementation that's that we've kind of been stuck with. And temporal is is how we're fixing that, or how I say where, but I, I really have to give huge props to the people who've been working on this for years, Maggie Pint and and Matt Johnson and Brian Charlson, and like there's a there's a long list of contributors to this to this proposal that I mean they've done amazing work and it's to the like the complexity of this is to the point where they are actually they actually need to change the standard ISO 8601 format because while the standard date time format that you're used to is good it doesn't include things like different calendars so it assumes the mm-hmm. kind of standard Gregorian calendar that we all use but there are other calendars around the world in different religions and different people groups they use different calendaring systems and that kind of string permanence doesn't encapsulate that so do you so, know does it include like the star date calendar from star trek dates <laughs> well, as well i don't know that it does by default <laughs> well, you could include it i think that the the beauty of this proposal is that you can kind of you can put any calendar you want in i think i'm, I'm a little out on the limb there because i'm not 100 percent sure but i think you can say use x calendar use this other calendar Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe they have to be built in but maybe you could provide your own too so one thing that i'm wondering is is what we've seen with some of these other proposals is that the proposal looks a lot like something else that's already out there right it it doesn't it does doesn't adopt all of it all the time but pieces of it so how how does this compare to moment or something else right i think if you well i'll first say that that moment is a huge step forward off of the the built-in date object, Mm -hmm. but incremental, right? So you still have kind of a single object that you're doing, adding, subtracting, diffing on those sorts of things. And it's basically a a quote-unquote moment object, whatever that is. Temporal introduces a bunch of new strong types. So you no longer just have a date type, you have a zoned date time or a plain time or a plain month day, which doesn't have any time, just the month and the day. So there are all these new types that are introduced. So it does look a little bit different from Moment in that way. But if you're familiar with or if if you're a fan of Moment's API, where it just has the dot add or dot subtract, those things are in the temporal proposal. So when you need to do kind of the typical web web application math arithmetic it's there mm-hmm. it's built in and that's i think that's probably the part that will look most like moment makes sense yeah i re- uh, it's a shame that aj wasn't able to join us because i, I <laughs> as i recall he actually implemented the library on top of temporal because he had some, mm-hmm. even with temporal he ran into some challenges doing time zone math in some cases and he, and he tried to make it simpler than the built-in functionality. But hmm. be that as it may, it's my understanding, I'm looking at the spec, I see that it's stage three, which means uh, yep. it's highly likely to be accepted. And I understand yep. there's already support for it, some support for it out there. Well, what's the situation with it? Yeah, I actually don't know the exact support yet, but I believe, I mean, stage three implies they're looking for vendors to implement it and their base only changes will come from implementation feedback basically so as engines are implementing it um, that's where that's the feedback that will change i don't know that any browser supports this yet i don't know that any vm like uh, node or dino or any of those i don't i don't know that they support it yet however there are multiple polyfills that are available so people who are interested in trying it out and in seeing how they could use it in reality um, in their applications or whatever could try it. of course this isn't ready for production <laughs> i wouldn't i would never suggest using this in production yet um, but the polyfills mm-hmm. are available to use it yeah so that said I, I don't think that there's any vm that yet implements this i think it's a it's a huge change it's a, it's one of the biggest changes i've seen other than like es 2015 es6 um, this is one of the biggest changes to javascript i've seen in my 15 years of of javascript development i think i actually confused myself uh, with between temporal and the internationalization uh, ah, functionality yes. which is which is already baked into browsers it is and is also yep. a huge step uh, forward in terms of the ability to support various local uh, locales and stuff like that absolutely 
Yeah. And actually, the the library that I mentioned earlier, Luxon, which is sort of a, an offshoot of Moment, uses, it uses the internationalization API to avoid having to ship time zone information because using internationalization, I think, helps you with most of that kind of stuff, which I think is why Temporal doesn't have to ship its own sort of localization, internationalization information because it can rely on the internationalization API, which to answer your question, about what's the support for that. Internationalization is well supported across most Evergreen browsers. So that's that's an API that you can rely on. And if, if that's what you're talking about with AJ building something on top of it, I totally understand. I've used the internationalization API. It is it is close to the metal. It's not easy to use. <laughs> so if, if he was trying to make that easier, I, I get that. I guess it, I, I gather it also has some potential performance issues due to the way in which it works and reaches out to the operating system, stuff like that. I've heard that. Yeah, that sounds plausible to me. Cool. Anything else to say about the temporal proposal? Are you ready, Steve? It's about damn time. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. I think it is about about damn time. And and I'm I'm really excited for this one to get in. It's a big change like we were talking about earlier. And and I'm sure the browser vendors have a lot of things on their plates to get this in there. But man, it'll be it'll be good when it does. So yeah, life will be good. Yeah. Because that that is probably one of the more painful things that they hadn't addressed. (laughs) Yeah. I mean at the very least, like if you're still including Moment and you get the latest Moment version, Moment can just be a thin wrapper around this browser API and you're shipping one kilobyte mm-hmm. instead of 40 kilobytes or whatever it is. Right. So that, that'll, that'll be a big improvement. And like you said, there are polyfills for it already, which make it safe to use. And between you and I, it's getting to the point where it's pretty quickly safe to use modern APIs in any event because of all the evergreen browsers and the fact that you you know with Node, you're usually just running the latest version anyway. So uh, even the polyfills are often not not as needed as they used to be. Yeah, and mm-hmm. a well-designed polyfill will just not even load itself if the API is there. So I mean, it's it's almost it's almost free free upgrades if you do it carefully. Cool. Well, let's move on to whatever's next. Sure. So my next most exciting thing is is import assertions. I think import import assertions are a really important step forward for for like the maturity of the JavaScript language. So I should say ECMAScript, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say JavaScript a lot because we are on JavaScript Java. Mm-hmm. Import assertions add a little bit of of text to module imports, and you can they basically allow a an importer, the consumer of a module, to say how they want to treat a module import. And it's kind of impossible to talk about this without talking about my next favorite one, which is JSON modules, because they began as one proposal and and sort of split off. But import assertions gives you the ability to control how JavaScript imports modules. And in the case of JSON modules, you can say this is type JSON, and JavaScript will import that natively and critically not execute it as code. Because as we know on the internet, things can say they're JSON file and actually be something malicious. So this that's kind of the main it's kind of there. it's kind of like accept headers to an extent, although with more validation built in, right. I assume. It's interesting because you know, again, AJ not being present, AJ is a big <laughs> proponent or so or like for AJ, uh, if I may paraphrase him, he kind of like is sad to an extent about this whole import thing and prefers that it, hmm. we would just have stayed with common JS. And mm-hmm. import assertions are an example of where we're getting functionality uh, on top of the import mechanism, which does not exist in, right. in common JS. And like exactly you said, the ability to specify what I expect the import to be. So I assert that what I'm importing is rather than a JavaScript file, it's a JSON file. And now I think they also support uh, CSS uh, modules as something that you can uh, import this yeah. way. And again, if you know the, the underlying engine verifies that whatever it's loading actually matches what you assert that it is. And if it isn't, then I guess it throws an exception or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not 100% clear on the, on the exact behavior of, you know, if an import doesn't match. But the basic, we can kind of talk about JSON modules and import assertions together. But the basic behavior of, you know, if I say this is JSON, it should parse it as JSON. And if it doesn't, then I assume that it will I think it, I think it will just not work. It just says this this module import failed because we couldn't we couldn't import this. But yeah, there's there have been lots of in, in fact there are other people who have said why don't we just use sort of the common JS module where you or, or, or method uh, approach where you just load up any anything and it just comes in as as a module. And some people very 
wisely said, well, this is a big security problem because we can't just trust that like any module we load hasn't been hacked or something and, and that it's now returning, instead of JSON, it's now returning some JavaScript code that could, mm-hmm. that could dump an entire user's session into some remote server or whatever. So there has to be a way from the consuming side to say, do not execute this, it's just JSON. And, and you're right that this is enabling, import assertions enable so many other things and CSS modules, like you said, are are in the HTML spec, I think. I think their HTML has sort of taken the import assertion side and said you can import CSS as well. And they're also talking about the possibility of HTML import assertions, which is kind of reviving the the dead uh, HTML imports, which which is uh, is exciting for people who are like who want to use kind of platform native modules without having to wrap HTML in in a JavaScript file or something. Yeah, down with JSX. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that by asserting a particular type, I'm actually informing the engine which parser to use so that, you know, if it's a JSON resource, then it just uses a JSON parser to begin with. It doesn't even try to parse it like an eval or something like that, uh, like a JavaScript. A question about that, though, you know, because naively I may ask, why would I want to import JSON rather than simply, I don't know, just download, use Ajax or Fetch to retrieve that resource and then just parse it as JSON? Why do I need it baked into the JavaScript language this way? Hmm. I think a lot of people use JSON as a sort of a portable format. And so rather than requiring a network list, like let's say let's say you're running a Rails application, right? And a bunch of I love Rails are, applications. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, a bunch of your application config is owned by the Rails side, right? Maybe it's it's owned mm-hmm. by your server side. But as soon as your front end side is loading or or it's, you know, you've compiled a build of your application, a bunch of that config should be shared with your front end. Maybe it's API endpoints or whatever, whatever data it is. It seems a little unnecessary to make a network round trip to go load that JSON from the back end and then parse it as, 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 as JSON in your JavaScript. It seems like during your build step, for example, you could just render that JSON file into your web directory and it's just available there for anyone who wants it. And I mean, maybe, maybe even your Rails app uses the same source of truth, I don't know. And in that case, it makes sense to just say, import it right from this file, that's, my, that's where my config is, or that's where my, my settings are, that's where my, the, the enabled user flags are, or whatever it is that I need to load. Um, it's all local, but it's, it's maybe controlled by someone else. I that- think that another motivation has to do with the fact that, like you said, certain resources are so core to the operation of the application that the application is really kind of meaningless without them. And it's preferable to be declarative about their use and basically obtain them up front. So for example, if I have a certain configuration, like you said, determines how the application actually behaves, then maybe like without that configuration, the application can't really run. So by specifying it as an import, I see up front that this configuration is actually used. And if that configuration load fails, then the application actually fails to load because the way that static imports actually work is that they all need to succeed in for the application for the application to actually load if one of them fails the application effectively fails to load that yeah. being said you can use dynamic import which effectively do become an alternative syntax to an extent to actually doing a fetch plus json yes and i think what you said about the kind of the declarative nature of like that config scenario and, and importing them is really critical we can do a lot of things in code and it's, in my opinion, it's always better to do them in a more explicit way. Like if it's just an import statement at the top, we know that that's part of the, the dependency tree of our application. And if it's just some function call or something in the startup of our application, that that kind of implies that it's a little less important. And I think making it an import is a really great signifier that like, this is something that our application depends on, config or whatever it is. So basically, I think we covered both points number two, which was the import assertions, as you said, which is stage three, I I believe. 
and right. also JSON modules, which I guess, yes, it's also stage three. And like you said, they kind of go hand in hand. You said that they originally were like one spec and then got split in two? They were, yeah. And that's you'll kind of see that trend with a lot of proposals is that someone has some idea of, of a real world thing that they want to do, like import JSON modules. And what's easier to get through as a proposal is here's how we're going to do something and then the what. Right. So like, what's the mechanism by which we're going to import JSON modules? And that'll be import assertions. And then the proposal for JSON modules comes in, which I think is a great way to go about things because it it forces proposals to be a little bit more generic, a little bit more of a of a primitive for the for the JavaScript language rather than uh, specific to an implementation. I think it's also really interesting to to at least mention that the import assertions proposal talks about something they call evaluator attributes. And there's no proposal for it yet. It's just sort of something that they're speculating about. But the idea is that along with assertions about what an import is, you could also provide an evaluator for that, uh, that, import, uh, that import. So you can say, there, there is a new way that I want to handle this file. And so that could be changing the way that it's parsed on, on import. And right now, that's not allowed, right? Like the right now, the specification says every module import needs to be the same as any other identical module import, which is a, it's a great thing for reliability and consistency in your application. Anytime you see one import, it's always going to be the same. Import assertions could allow consumers to change the way that modules are evaluated once they're loaded, which I think could be an extremely powerful way to add flexibility to the JavaScript language. Like say, for example, if you wanted to use a type system, maybe you could uh, say load this file and evaluate it as a different subset of JavaScript or, or a different superset of JavaScript. Do you think it'll be primarily used for this purpose or simply as a means to load resources that are not yet part of the spec? So, for example, I could theoretically create a YAML parser and then import a YAML file or something like that. Yeah, I actually am not sure because from my read of the proposal, I'm not exactly sure what they intended <laughs> evaluator attributes to be because I, I didn't really see like a, a strict like here's what we think we you could use this for or I may have missed it. But I think to your question directly, I think, you know, importing something like YAML is probably much more likely to be a, an initial implementation of this because it's it's one of the th those things where a JavaScript YAML parser already exists. So import this file maybe as text or whatever it is, and then just bam, you've got YAML sort of already there. Doing something like, like a TypeScript evaluator, that would be much harder because it's a whole, it's a whole language interpreter, which is, which is a whole different thing. And I don't, you know, of course, the mechanism here isn't specified. So who knows if you can provide your own parser or, or what these evaluator attributes would actually be. Um, I'm just sort of off the cuff speculating here, but it, it seems really powerful and interesting to me um, as an extension of import assertions. Cool. So let's move on to the next one, which I think is built in modules or did I skip one accidentally? Yeah. No, that's right. Yeah, we, we kind of skipped JSON modules, but we've already talked about that pretty in depth. So yeah, that's built-in modules is the next big one. And this, unfortunately, this one is a stage one. And if you, I assume that you, you talked about it in the, the JS Jabber episode about, about the proposal process. I feel like I probably would have heard that in the 400s, but I don't recall it. So um, <laughs> go back and listen. <laughs> yeah, I need to. I, I missed it. And for the stage listener, one. we'll put a link in the show notes too so you yeah. can go back and listen and go, well, and for, oh, when he says stage four, what is... Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> and I'll, I'll say it right here. Stage one proposals are not yet even expected to make it into the into the JavaScript standard. Um, ECMA 262 is the standard. Stage two proposals, once they make stage two, they do expect it to get into the standard. But stage one, they're still sort of speculating about what could happen. So Yeah, yeah stage, basically stage, stage, one stage one is like is like somebody uh, expresses an interest in it more or less within yeah. the committee. That's more yep. or less what it means. Not much more than that. Yeah. Yep. There's a committee champion and that's about it. So I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, when I talk to you, I mean, I really feel the developer vibe and I know that's your background, but is, mm -hmm. is all of Raygun that way? I mean, you know, it just kind of feels like when I talk to other companies, they're a little more corporate, a little more you know, focused on maybe, you know, raising money or doing other things, you know. But it seems like when I talk to you, you're just, you know, down-to-earth developer dude. I like to think of myself as a down-to-earth developer dude. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Ray, Raygun is a little bit different. Um, so, 
you know, we're not heavily VC backed. Um, you know, my business partner and I, when we started, we were both nerds, you know, um, I, I might be the CEO today and I don't write code on the product. Um, but you know, the joke internally is, you know, what's the definition of technical debt, Chuck? It's CEO code. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff to go fix. Um, (laughs) But uh, no, we're... Stories. (laughs) We're a cash flow positive business. You know, we're not heavily VC funded, um, you know, but we we are at a size now where we are expanding and more and more folks are, are discovering what we're about. But yeah, we often look through things through that lens of a developer. You know, I wanted a 30,000 foot view, but I also want to go right down to an individual um, data point. Um, similarly, you know, I don't believe in averages. I want medians. I want P99s. I, I make better decisions that way. And so we try and drive that sort of thinking into our products and try and be as developer uh, minded as we possibly can be. Yeah, I love that because, you know, for me, it's it's run by people who get me um, and you're not under pressure from like a VC to raise your prices or, you know, go hyper grow and then, oh, crap, now we're behind the eight ball with our money and now we've got to figure it out. You know, you're just going to keep growing, steadily moving. And, and I just love that. Yeah. I mean, the term these days is often referred to as product led growth, right? Like get people use the product mm-hmm. and say, hey, that's great. I want to give you money. Um, I don't think it's that complicated. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, folks, if you want to go check it out, you can go find them at raygun.com. Uh, you can actually sign up for a free trial right there on the website. Yeah, built-in modules, I think it, it, it's another one of those things that would unlock so much potential of the JavaScript language to to allow experimentation and expansion without sort of having to change the language or having to add things to the global object of, of the of the runtime. You can you can kind of the built-in modules proposal suggests that an import would have a prefix of JS colon and then importing from the standard library. And that would allow the TC39 committee to say, well, we're going to put the 25 most commonly used utilities in the JavaScript standard library, whatever it is. Or maybe it would allow a more functional approach. So right now you can call map, filter, reduce all those things on arrays, but those functions are attached to the array prototype. And maybe you want to just have a generic one of those operators, and that could be in the standard library. Yeah, I think that this is the one that, again, I'll speak for AJ. I think this is the one that AJ would be most excited about. Like uh, the yeah. one suggestion that he really wants to be see introduced into the language. Basically, what we see in a lot of other programming languages is that instead of constantly enhancing the language itself, they instead add uh, functions into a standard library that goes along with the language. Now, sometimes the distinction between what is the language standard and what is the standard library is kind of fuzzy or blurry. Uh, For some languages, it's essentially one and the same. Mm -hmm. But basically, it's a library of functions and objects and methods that you expect to have accessible from any implementation of that programming language. And like you said, the the basic idea here is that I'll be able to, as a JavaScript developer, I'll be able to access these, uh, let's say, functions using imports, but instead of having to import them from some library that I installed via NPM or something like that, I'd be able to get them from the actual runtime environment. So like you said, it might be a JS prefix on the path, or I saw other suggestions that it might use the at symbol like npm installs, but with certain well-known names. There are certain, there are various thoughts here, like stage one, so <laughs> they're still experimenting with it. But, but essentially, it means that I'll be able to import things that are built into the language engine And the advantages here are, one, that uh, I'll get the same implementation always. So it's not like, you know, one uh, Mm -hmm. using one NPM, one version of some NPM library, I'll get one thing. And then some other version of the NPM library, I'll get something else. In this case, the signature and behavior will be guaranteed. And the second thing is that I could avoid the the download because it will be just uh, baked in to the browser or to Node or whatever. So again, I avoid the the extra download that might go along with you know the extra functionality. And and yeah. theoretically, things like temporal 
or the internalization that we talked about before could have been implemented as uh, built-in modules that you import when you need them. And obviously, I'm also very much in favor of it. One possibility, by the way, you know, Dino is at, is effectively creating this sort of a standard library that goes along with it. So maybe some of that could make it into a standard library like that. By the way, uh, interestingly, the people at the Google people experimented with something like that in Chrome. They created a key value pair library yeah. that was built into Chrome and could be ac- accessed using uh, like this sort of an import from within the Chrome, but it didn't really catch on. So it seems like yeah. like you know they experimented with the concept, but it didn't really go anywhere. So I'm, I'm I'd be really happy to see something like that mature into the into the language i would very much like to get a lot of functionality as a standard library instead of having it like you said just be attached with uh, with you know on top of prototypes because for example yeah. i keep seeing more and more functions making their way on top of the array prototype and you know it's starting to get ridiculous to an extent and uh, and having it more generically provided via modules when you actually need it and only import the functions that you actually need seems like a better way to go. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the JavaScript ecosystem has had the kind of upsets, this, like the left pad thing, right? Like someone removed mm-hmm. the left pad function from NPM and, and a huge amount of sites broke because the package was just gone. And now, of course, we have we have string padding, and it's part of the string prototype. But it would be a lot better if we had just kind of a almost a bare bones string implementation. And in the standard library, we have padding and begins with and and ends with and all those all those string prototype functions that are useful and people obviously need them. But they should be in a little standard library. And and I mean, you might you might be thinking, well, I mean, I can just download it from npm. It's you know, it's it's half a kilobyte. Why bother? Or I have Lodash. I you know, I can just do those things. And like you mentioned earlier, imagine if every site in the world could just stop shipping Lodash. Lodash isn't a huge library, but imagine if every site in the world could stop shipping it. I mean, that it would be it would be a massive improvement to kind of the experience of the web for everyone. Yeah, one other thing that, uh, or a couple of thoughts that I have on this. So one is is one thing I've seen with my experience in Ruby and, and other languages that have standard libraries is once they have the standard library and they start shipping it, then what happens is the core teams actually tend to start to optimize them. Mm-hmm. And so then you start getting speed ups and size reductions and stuff like that on those libraries because now they're getting attention from people who look at it from uh, from the other end. And so I see that as a huge benefit. The The flip side is, and this is the only downside I've ever seen to standard libraries, and the workaround's really not that big a deal, is that they tend to lock in, right? So if you are using this version of the language or this version of the VM, right? So you do node 14 or node 16 or whatever, right? It'll lock in the version of the standard library package that you're getting, right? And so it may lock in the CSV library. Let's say they put that in there at a particular version. And so if you want the new features, you actually have to go pull it in yourself, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like the problem with standards is like once yeah. they, they enforce, it's it's much harder to change them and you're kind of stuck with whatever that decision was uh, that was made, which mm-hmm. emphasizes the need to be really careful about what goes in or not into a standard library. Uh, by the way, yeah. another, another benefit of a standard library is one that is related to stuff that we've talked about in recent episode are supply chain security. Because mm-hmm. again, if it's part of a standard library, you can pretty much assume that it's been vetted and, and, and is safe compared to some of the libraries that people are now downloading from NPM. And we've, we've had people on the show right. talking about some scary story about things that you could accidentally import into your project. Right. And, and to yeah. both of your points, I mean, about not only optimization, but you know, supply chain improvements, if it's part of the standard library, vendors, whether it's a browser vendor or some VM like like Dino or Node, they are they're going to be implementing that part of that standard library most likely in a system level language like C plus plus maybe yeah you know if, if your browser is doing it so not only will it be faster but it's also like this is running outside of your browser environment and that comes with its own inherent risks obviously it's it can be insecure but 
a browser vendor is way more likely to make sure that the code that they write that is running on devices is probably going to be safe and a lot faster. So I think there's a there's a huge upsides to moving these common things into standard library. Yeah, the other thing is, is the ECMAScript, like you said, the ECMAScript uh, process is slow. I mean, there's a reason Can't for be. that, right? It's, yeah. But the yeah. flip side is, is that, yeah, if, if it makes sense to put it into the standard, the vetting process can go a lot faster. Right. Well, I was, I was just going to kind of kind of plus one to what you said of like, it's it can be slow because of the downside you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. from the built-in library. Because once you put something in JavaScript, once that's running in a browser, you can't ever break it. I mean, right. they have done it very rarely, but generally speaking, you can't ever change anything that's in the browser. So that's, that's why that process mm-hmm. is so slow. Yep. I would also like to mention that some of the items that we will mention later that I saw on your list, you might say that they're kind of dependent on the built-in modules. I mean, yeah. you could make them globals, like I, you know, when Big Int was introduced, they they made the right. Big Int constructor effectively global. And I guess it does make sense to make certain really common things global like that. But uh, a lot of the other things that we we'll talk about are like something that you might decide to opt in or not. And once something is is optional, why have it kind of uh, add noise to your global namespace if you don't even intend to use it? And you're always, like you said previously, you're always running risk of collisions with with stuff like that. So having these sort of things as being part of the standard library and importing them into the modules that actually need them and use them makes things things a whole lot cleaner and, you know, more tidy, less messy. Yeah. And actually, exactly to your point of like running into collisions, the spe- the proposal for this built-in module system actually explicitly says anything that you import from the built-in module system would have a frozen prototype. So we can't get things like smoosh gate or how we have includes instead of contains for arrays because various other tools have already extended the array prototype to have those commonly used words, which makes sense, of course, like people wanted to use them back before they existed, but now we can't make changes to the to the the language because it conflicts with those libraries. Um, so the still the the standard built in library would would kind of protect against that future collision, um, possibly not only by namespacing it, but also by um, sort of locking down the modules so that they can't be uh, artificially extended. Mm-hmm. Cool. So what's the next one? So the next one, I think these first four that we talked about are really important changes to the language. The next set of on my top 10 are ones that I'm really excited about personally. I think a lot of people maybe are not, or there's very divided opinions on them. My next one is the observable proposal. It's also a stage one. The last time it was presented to the committee was May of 2017, which that's not that's not a great sign, but I'm really excited <laughs> about it. <laughs> um, if you've heard of RxJS or, mm-hmm. or basically observable streams, this is this is a JavaScript primitive for that behavior. Basically encapsulates a push data architecture rather than a than a pull which if you you know if you want to listen for click events you are essentially pulling because you are saying i want to listen on this element uh, versus saying when something happens i want to react to that Um, so this observable would enable a reactive programming style rather than a like more, a more imperative style. This observables are, are complex. They're they're really hard things to like sort of understand. Even when you sort of get the concept, the code is hard to understand because they are these sort of live streams of data that occur outside of your control and you just react to them. Um, so that it's sort it's it's hard to get your brain around sort of the 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 push mechanism versus the pull mechanism. But I think it's a I think it's a really powerful paradigm of, of switching the flow of applications or the flow of data from requesting or, or imperatively pulling that data to being pushed that data and just responding. So here I'm going to push back on you a little bit. Take, I guess, take AJ's place, <laughs> given that yeah, he's not here. Yeah. So I'm I'm very ambivalent about this. I know that some of the pe- uh, that a lot of people are really in favor of it. Interestingly, especially the RxJS people, you know, some people might expect that people who have invested a lot of time and effort in a library would be wary of uh, core parts of the library making their way into the standard and effectively invalidating their library. But I found it that it's very often the exact opposite. Like people who work on open source projects would love for their open source project to no longer actually be needed because 
to an extent Absolutely. they've won and they don't have to yep. put all the effort in into it anymore. So I think that yeah, that's certainly the case here. But but I have two issues with it. So the first issue yeah. is that as you said, observables are very popular, but the majority of applications out there written in JavaScript don't use the re- reactive approach, certainly not to the extent that, you know, RxJS uh, promotes. And and there's a reason for that. And so the question then becomes, if it's something that's relatively rarely used in, in practice, does it really need to be a part of the core language, even as part of a standard library? Because at the end of the day, it's perfectly legitimate for things to be outside of the standard library if you you know you look at other programming languages that do have a standard library they very often have you know really popular libraries that are very commonly used but they're not standard and for me it kind of makes sense that maybe observable while it is really popular among some some people and is definitely used in a lot of cases it still feels to me as something that might not be quite popular enough, you might say, to be to actually need to be part of the standard library or the or the programming language itself. So so that's one issue that I have with it. And the other can I, can I address that for a oh, second? Go for it. And also Thomas, I just get car- tend to get carried away with No, it's all good. So, you know, I have the benefit of talking to people in a lot of different communities, and uh, RxJS is actually core to Angular and how it does change detection, among other things. And so having it part of the standard library, having, you know, some of the benefits that come with that, or, you know, or having it built into the language would really help people in that arena. And I do see people use it in other places, but yeah, they're usually more explicitly pulling it in or pulling something in that it pretty directly lets you know that it's working off of observables instead of the other way around. And so, yeah, it's it's popular, but I, I think there's a wider swath of people that are using it than you think. <laughs> I actually didn't know that Angular was relying on observables and that's or, or, or Rx. That's that's pretty interesting. Um, mm-hmm. My use case for observables, and Dan, I want to I wanna get your opinion on on something you said, but my use case for observables is sort of in that same scope, in the same scope of of like the framework level. I'm architecting my entire applications, at least the ones that I have architectural control over them, as sort of message streaming architectures where individual components are responding to events that occur and not in not explicitly bound to other pieces of the application mm-hmm. and i'm that's probably roughly how angular does it at, at a very high level yeah um, more or less but dan, you, you know dan you said you said that there's you know there's a reason that it's not super widely used and i want to get your opinion on on what you think that reason is so f- or reasons. Yeah. So interestingly, also at Next Insurance, where I, I currently work, some of our uh, main applications are Angular applications and also rely heavily on RxJS, which shows both the benefits and also some of the limitations of, of this approach. From my perspective, the the main issue that I see with it is that... It's, it requires a, a significant level of expertise to be able to properly leverage it. If you're not quite an RxJS expert, it can get really hairy and dicey to work with RxJS code. It becomes almost like magic. It's, it's very difficult to follow the logic and fully, and even people familiar with the applications sometimes have a hard uh, time, uh, you know, grasping the total image of, of where the data flows, because it's so easy to subscribe to something. And then effectively, you've created another stream or route that the data can flow down. And, and it's really difficult. So you, something happens, it's observed, and it impacts like a, all over the application. And it's almost like magic. It, it, it becomes really difficult to, to, to like, be cognizant of all the things that might be imp- impacted by that change. And related to that is the fact that it's really difficult to debug. Uh, you effectively cannot single step 
through that data flow. Uh, you will usually, if you look at the call stack, it's it's totally illegible. So it, you need to know where the data flows to and then maybe put a breakpoint there. But again, it, it can mm-hmm. be really difficult to, if you're not sufficiently familiar with the, with the architecture of the application or all the implementation details to know where all the places are, so you can get really unexpected kind of side effects from from the fact that that data changes. Think about it like a really complicated Excel spreadsheet where a lot of the cells are kind of dependent, interdependent, and you put just, you change just one value and all of a sudden like half the spreadsheet changes and it's really difficult to to understand exactly why that happened. But again, I'm not opposed to this method of operation. Like, Like you, personally, I actually like it. But I, I'm simply not sure that it needs to be a core part of the language. I understand that proponents of RxJS, for example, actually hope that by making it core, more people will start using it. But if you're just looking at it in the context of Angular, like you said, Chuck, then I, if I'm importing Angular, then I might as well also import RxJS. It doesn't make that much of a difference. Mm-hmm. I think one of the benefits of making it a, a primitive in the in the language is from my read. So first, I want to say I would never claim to be an observable expert. It is it is <laughs> I like it just yeah. like you, Dan. But it is so hard that it, it's it's difficult to understand. But even my read of the proposal has simplified my understanding of of the high level concept just from reading the proposal because it is so much simpler on its surface when it becomes a primitive it has a subscriber and the subscriber returns an unsubscriber and that's that's kind of the the basic behavior there and then an observer has a next every time you receive a value you get the next thing and then an error and a complete handler and that's it that's the whole thing and obviously obviously there's so much complexity buried under that <laughs> it's hidden under the hood but from just reading the proposal to me it seems like it could simplify the concept substantially and maybe there are maybe rxjs continues to be a library that builds on top of that primitive with much more complex ideas but if you want just i just want one way to stream data maybe you can just use the base observable implementation and it's much simpler and maybe that could be the entry point for people to say ah this is this is actually a great way to to receive events re- react to things happening rather than um, you know expect things to happen explicitly um, and they could do it with that much simpler primitive now I could be wrong that it's simpler. It seems simpler to me, but... Oh, I agree. I it that. is simpler because, it again, it distills just the core concept without a lot of the uh, sophisticated capabilities that, like you said, are available in RxJS. And, but by the way, if I look at promises, originally promises mm-hmm. were really simple and really small in terms of the scope of their implementation. Mm-hmm. But little yeah. by little, they're getting more and more features that we had in libraries like uh, Bluebird. So the the scope of implementation keeps keeps on growing, and and you know it grows because it's it's actually useful and it's used. But but things tend not to stay simple. That's all I'm saying. But I, I do actually have another issue with the observe with observable, and that's the fact that at the end of the day, in terms of the functionality and the, the capabilities that it provides, there's actually a significant overlap at least the way that I see it, between observables and asynchronous iterators and generators. A lot of the like uh, uh, push-type uh, implementations that you can do with observables, you can do using a different syntax, obviously, but using asynchronous iterators and generators. So and and here and there's a double problem here because you know already we will be creating uh, two different ways with really different syntax to achieve very similar results. But beyond that, uh, asynchronous iterators and generators are unfortunately not very popular. I kind of consider that, and we had several episodes talking about iterators and generators Mm -hmm. in the context of JavaScript Jabber, Mm -hmm. I consider them to be kind of a failure because they are Mm -hmm. really powerful mechanism that's built into the language but that is hardly ever used by by the vast majority of people. So uh, unless you're, you might be saying is you know that 
we've kind of failed with the synchronous iterators and generators, but it's still a useful concept. So maybe observables are kind of a replacement. Maybe that's some way to look at it. But otherwise, you're potentially adding yet another cap- similar functionality into the language and with no reason to expect that this one would be that much more popular. So a worst case scenario might be that we end up with two constructs in the language that achieve very similar uh, res- uh, purposes, but and both are effectively pretty unpopular and hardly used. Yeah, that, that is a huge risk. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a JavaScript maximalist, but I'm also not a JavaScript minimalist. And so th- there's this sort of tug and pull inside of me to like, should we should we just add more <laughs> and like the the best one can win or yeah should we try to find the right solution and and optimize that so you know maybe it's asynchronous generators but um, the best one doesn't can't really win because like you said before once it's in the standard it can never actually be removed so essentially right. you're you keep on adding more and more layers and while i'm kind of in the same camp camp as you are i do appreciate what you know the minimalist stance that AJ has, for example, that yeah, mm-hmm, that totally. you know you shouldn't add something into the language unless a it's very much in line with what the language already is, and b there's a high probability that it's really going to, that it's useful and will be used properly. Yep. And yep. I'm on the fence with observables. Let's put it this way. Sure. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Chuck, want to do picks? All right. Well, I was going to say, I think we're overdue for picks. So I think so. <laughs> anyway, this has been really terrific. We are definitely going to be yeah. splitting it into two episodes. Thank you so but, much for having me on. Oh, it's been terrific. I love, talk, love talking with y'all. All right. Well, let's let's make Steve go first. He's been quiet for a little bit. <laughs> so we'll start. Actually, we'll start it and end with the high point of any of these podcast episodes, which are the dad jokes. So the other day I went to see my doctor. And he told me that I was really growing as a person. But what he really said was, you've gained a bunch of excess weight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Highly expected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Speaking of doctors, I know a surgeon that actually puts organs in. He puts organs back in upside down. I said, that's not funny. But he just said it was an inside joke. And then um, I saw a news story recently where a store clerk had fought off an armed robber with a pricing gun. So the police are now looking for a man with a price on his head. <laughs> I like that one. That was good. You know, that's sort of a takeoff. If anybody knows Stephen Wright, he has a classic joke about a crazy lady that lived in his apartment building who tried to hold up a department store with a pricing gun. And she said, give me all your money or I'll mark down everything in the store. <laughs> that's a good one, actually. <laughs> Those are you my know, picks for the day. You know, Steve, I have a friend who tried to put together uh, a dating app for chickens, but it was really hard for him to get hens meat. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Do you have any actual picks or should we move on? I guess if those aren't actual picks, then no, I don't have any actual picks. Well, just things that, yeah, anyway. Um, well, I will, I will say one, and this is probably going to be a little contentious, but as of today, yesterday was the day that a federal judge rescinded the Biden mask mandate on airlines and for travel. Mm-hmm. So hallelujah, amen, and everything else. That makes flying more pleasant. All right, Dan, what are your picks? Okay, I have a few. So my first pick is uh, I'm watching Star Trek Picard. And I'm enjoying it. It's a, it's a nice little show. It's not amazing. You know, that's the interesting thing about Star Trek for me. The, the premise is always much greater than the actual execution. <laughs> I'm, I'm always, I always mm-hmm. expect to, to enjoy the, uh, the, the various series much more than I actually do. 
But there's one particular thing that I especially do like about Star Trek Picard. And I think that's a a pretty obvious thing. And that thing is Sir Patrick Stewart. He is such an amazing actor. Like, it's, it's astounding to see, you know, how much of a better actor he is than everybody else on the cast. <laughs> um, and it's such a pleasure to watch him act. And I, ju- I just enjoy, you know, I would literally just watch him read stuff. I don't even need the, 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 all, all the things with the spaceships and stuff. You know, just watching him on screen, especially reprising that role. Mm-hmm. He's just amazing. And I, and I, love, and I love it for, just for that. So that's... Yeah, he could read the dictionary. If he exactly. Like that, huh? He's such an amazing actor. Yeah. So my wife's a real big fan of that, too. She really looks forward to all the Picard episodes. And she's trying to get me into watching it, but I haven't uh, broken down yet. Yeah. So that would be my first pick. My second pick is the great uh, Noam Rosenthal, who is actually a past, uh, past guest on our show, uh, is doing great work working on the various standards, like the HTML standard. And uh, he's actually managed to in- introduce an in- a really cool new feature into the HTML standard, which is the 103 early hint uh, responses. Basically, it's a mechanism that uh, allows uh, the server, while it's still working on the main response, to send like a sort of a pre-response down to the browser, telling the browser, while you wait, please download this and that resource. So you can kind of, you know, so for example, think about, you know, you need to work to generate the HTML, but you can already inform uh, the client that it should start downloading various, I don't know, images or JavaScript or whatever, because it will be needed later on. And I can post, you know, put the, the link to the proposal in our show notes, except that, you know, our show notes apparently will have a lot of links in them uh, this time around. So that would be my second pick. And my third pick is the one that I just mention each and every time, just to remember that the war in Ukraine is still ha- going on, still happening. This is so sad, so unfortunate. I really hope that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of worried or concerned that people kind of might start normalizing it because it's just taking so long and it's not ending. It, it just makes me so sad. And I really wish that all this suffering would be over. And those would be my three picks. All right. I'm going to throw out some picks as well. So you mentioned Sir Patrick Stewart. And uh, one of my favorite things that he's read is, and I, I got this on Audible. It was the Chronicles of Narnia and they had different actors and actresses reading the different books and Sir Patrick Stewart reads The Last Battle which is the final book and he did a tremendous job a lot of the other narrators are great too but I'm just going to pile on because I've enjoyed that for me the best part of Star Trek Picard now I've only seen the first season I haven't seen the second season yet the best part of that was just seeing all the other old characters and actors and actresses come back right because that, that was just fun. They have all the callbacks to the old series. For my board game pick this week, I'm actually going to do something a little bit different. This is something I do with my kids. It has board games on it, like Battleship or Reversea or some of these others. It's It works through the text message function on your phone. It only works on my iPhone. I don't know if it runs on Android or not. But it's called Game Pigeon. And you can actually text somebody a game and then when you take turns, it texts you back and forth. And so anyway, it's it's a lot of fun. And it's a fun way to play some board games with my kids. And so, yeah, my I tend to play it with my 13-year-old and 15-year-old are the ones that are really into it. So anyway, so that's going to be my board game pick. It's a little bit different. But anyway, so I'm going to shout out about that. And then I'm just trying to think here. There's just so much going on right now. Yeah, I don't know if I have anything else right off the top of my head. So we'll go ahead and let Thomas go. Thomas, what picks do you have? Sure. I've, um, I've got a bunch, but I will, I'll limit to my top three uh, with one bonus, which is plus one to kind of remembering what's going on in Ukraine. As of today, I know this will come out much later, but as of today, I think the fighting has picked up pretty badly in the eastern Donbass region again, which is, which is troubling. So yeah, keeping that in our, in our minds. Um, I'll also pick my notes for this for this episode or these episodes. I have tons of links to all the proposals. I have links to prior art. I have links to code examples. And so I'll, those are all published live and um, that can be sort of a resource here in, in addition to you know, the picks that I don't say out loud. I have this book 
that has that has kind of been stuck in my brain for a really long time. It's it's actually a really old book with a, a few a few updates for more modern times. It's called The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. I think it's a it's it's not really about programming, although I think it's it can be really important to read for for developers because it, it kind of helps you understand the phrase you might hear phrases like affordances or signifiers or those kinds of things and those come from essentially this book and it's it's how we it's how we design things that people can use um, i think it's a it's a really kind of seminal book on on how design works um, and i think it's a really important thing so i'll pick that book and then my last one is i i found a i found an article that i that was gave a really great overview of what reactive programming is it's sort of it's sort of my my passions architecture of programming so i'll, I'll link to this article called what is reactive programming by kevin weber it's on a it's on a, a a blog from a from a company. I think it's a really great overview of reactive programming and why it's such an important uh, paradigm in modern development. But yeah, there's there's lots more links in this, and I'll shout out Dan's pipeline stuff that he's he wrote. Those are I've linked those as well. So that's it for me. All right. If people want to connect with you online, I think you mentioned that you're on Twitter. Um, that's right. Yeah. You want to let yeah, people my, know where yeah, to? I think. And by the way, sure, I have yeah, to my, say that uh, definitely worth the follow. So. If it, <laughs> well, thanks, Dan. That that, that actually means a ton. Thank you. you. Uh, thank you. Thank oh, you for saying for that. sure. I I, I call <laughs> um, it as I see it. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. My Twitter account is uh, Rockerist. R O C K E R E S T. And and I will say that's kind of tw- Twitter's. I think this might be a paraphrase of AJ. Twitter's where you go to ha- like have hot takes and be divisive. So so I have a stance on Twitter, and it's and it's it's for certain things. So give me a follow and see what you think, and and I won't be offended if you don't follow if you unfollow me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's probably the best place to see my sort of daily thoughts. My sort of the canonical place to find me is is my main website, which is just rdl.ph, which is my last name without most of the most of the letters. So rdl.ph is sort of my landing page. But yeah, find me on Twitter at, at Rockrest, R-O-C-K-E-R-E-S-T, and and I look forward to interacting with you all about how wrong I was that these are the best proposals for TC39. Sounds good. All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. And until next time, folks, Max out. Bye. Bye. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.